0: Well, good morning, church. I'm so glad that all of you are here today. At the same time, I'm sad because I can't be with you. Uh, Me and my family, we were on the move. We're on one last road trip uh, this summer, uh, but we'll be back in just a couple of days. But I'm so glad that you're here today because you get to hear one of my favorite people in the world uh, speak to you today. Uh, Brock Palk is the preaching minister. For the Heritage Church of Christ in Fort Worth. And today I'm so glad that he uh, accepted our invitation to come and to speak to us, to encourage us, to encourage you as we continue uh, to, to try to follow Jesus together. Especially this summer as we consider the Gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus as told by uh, one of his closest followers, Mark. And as we again try to trace the movements of Jesus and see where in our lives is Jesus calling us to make a move. So today I pray that you'll be blessed and encouraged as you hear my friend Brock Paul uh, bring the message. Well, good morning, Riverside. I really, really have been excited to be with you uh, for the few weeks that I've known that I was going to get to come and share this morning. This is one of those churches. I've never been on your campus before today, but I have a lot of connections here. Lots of people I went to college with, and some of you have family members at the church where I serve at Heritage over in Fort Worth. And so I know we, uh, our churches share a lot in common, especially our mission to try to be servants to our community. And so I bring greetings from Heritage. And it's a real honor to be able to stand in the place where Corey normally speaks and uh, preaches every week. And so I do want to let you know, if you're here for the first time this week here at Riverside, you really need to come back because Corey is quickly becoming one of my favorite uh, friends in ministry, and I am blessed by his preaching every time I get the chance to hear it. I know that if you were to reflect over your own life, it would be really easy for you to come up with some of the most pivotal moments, some of the moments in your life where you thought, "Boy." Life really changed at that spot in the timeline, and I can remember the moment in my life when I first decided that love at first sight might be possible. Ironically, I'd already been married for a little over three years at that point. <laughs> My wife is here, and I love her dearly, but uh, it took some time for us to fall in love with one another. It was not an immediate thing. The moment when I thought love at at first sight might be real was the moment when I met my son, who was born in July of 2008. If you've got kids, you know the feeling I'm talking about. I can remember sitting in that hospital room, and they brought to me that helpless, precious, innocent, perfect little baby and I looked at him and I realized his entire life was out in front of him and he was depending on us to keep him fed and changed and cleaned and sheltered and the whole bit he was going to need our help for everything he was going to wake us up in the middle of the night we had been sleeping so well he was going to cost us a lot of money We'd saved. But the thing was, the amazing thing was, we were thrilled. We knew that life was going to be different. We knew that some things were going to be hard. We knew there was going to be a lot of adjustment, but we were so excited and we loved him the minute we saw him. Now, most of the time, love doesn't work out quite that way. Real life is not like a romantic comedy film. You don't typically declare your love for someone within 90 minutes of meeting them and live happily ever after. Most love stories take some time to develop. They take a lot of effort to be written. That's part of what makes love so hard. But it's also part of what makes love so special and part of what makes love so worth it. And that's the thought that I want you to have in mind this morning as we approach the passage of scripture that we're going to cover next in your summer series called Move. And in this series, we've been tracing the major steps, the major moves that Jesus made in the gospel of Mark and looking to see what kind of moves he is calling us to make as we follow. So we're going to listen in today as Jesus describes as clearly as possible what the entirety of the spiritual life is all about. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, whether it's on your app, On your phone or whether it's on your lap right in front of you, you can join me in the book of Mark, and if you open up to the table of contents in your Bible, you'll find a big heading there likely called New Testament. Mark will be the second entry right after that. Mark, the person who wrote this, was a close and personal friend to a a few of the apostles, people who had spent devoted and extended time with Jesus. Maybe some of these guys you've heard of or you've seen a hospital named after them, people like Peter and Paul or St. Peter and St. Paul. Mark knew these guys personally, and both of them referred to him as their partner in ministry. And so Mark kind of did an internship under these guys, kind of a, a mentee to Peter and Paul. He learned from them. He listened. He got to hear firsthand the stories of their experiences knowing Jesus and his followers. He got to hear about some of the miracles that Peter had witnessed. He got to hear about some of the teachings. He was hearing about this stuff just immediately from the source, the people who had been with Jesus. And Mark was so moved by these stories that he dedicated his own life to sharing the message of Jesus. In fact, one of the most amazing, powerful things that Mark did for us and in his faith journey was he decided to write it all down. He wanted to write down the essence of the story that had so changed his life, and that's what we're looking at when we open up the book of Mark. In the chapter we're reading today, which is in chapter 12, Jesus is facing a barrage of questioning, public questioning. There's debate going on. There are some religious leaders from various groups, and they don't necessarily agree on much, but they agree on one thing, that Jesus is dangerous, and that Jesus' message is inconsistent with the message of truth. And so they would set him up they would ask him these divisive questions in a public forum, and they hoped that his answer might help them to build a case against him legally and to set public opinion against him as well. And so, for example, in this chapter, they tried to get him to take a political stance on the issue of paying taxes to the occupying Roman government. You can only imagine that this is an issue that everybody in town had an opinion on one way or another. And so whatever Jesus's answer to that question was, there were going to be people in the audience, people in the crowd who didn't like it. They tried again. They tried to trick him into contradicting himself and their religious law by creating a a hypothetical situation about a very unfortunate woman who was widowed seven times by seven men who were brothers with one another consecutively. And so they've really gone to some far-fetched lengths. They're using mental gymnastics to try to set Jesus up, and it's just comical how far, how hard they work to try to make him look bad, but at the same time, it's captivating to see the way that Jesus outsmarts them every time. Not only that, Jesus' Jesus's answers demonstrate a level of faithfulness to his heavenly Father that was on an entire another level. Like, people just couldn't imagine the type of faithfulness faithfulness that he was describing his answers left them amazed so much so that mark says after these series of these public set up moments one of the religious teachers came to ask a question and it appears that there was a different more pure motive behind it This time he didn't appear to be trying to trick Jesus. He seemed to be moved by how Jesus had been responding. And so we begin reading in chapter 12 and verse 28. Mark says, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to this entire debate. Had heard this exchange about taxes and listened to the hypothetical about the poor widowed woman. And he realized that Jesus had answered well. And so he asked, of all of the commandments, of all of the laws, of all of the rules that are part of our faith, which one is the most important? This was a rare occasion when one of the religious leaders who were typically opposed to Jesus in his ministry came with a genuine inquiry, this man was a teacher himself. He'd been through years and years of training. He had been mentored by teachers before him. He had dedicated his life to interpreting and applying the law of Moses. These Jewish rabbis like this, they studied over 600 laws that applied to their faith. They debated with each other about which law had precedence and priority over the others. And every teacher would have their own opinion, their own understanding of what was most critical. And their opinion was connected to the way that they understood God, the character and the nature of God. And so when this man, this teacher, asks Jesus which commandment is the most important, he's not asking a random question. He is not asking an arbitrary question. He is asking the question. It's like asking Jesus, hey, what's the meaning of life? Like, what is it all about? What are we here for? He is asking a question that the answer is going to tell you the entire platform and direction of Jesus's ministry, which is why today is a good opportunity for you and I to lean in and listen to the answer. Because he's not just answering a question that was applicable 2,000 years ago. This is the core of what Jesus' message is all about. If you want to know what Jesus prioritizes most, if you want to boil life down to the goal that is most important, listen to what Jesus has to say next. Verse 29 and 30, Mark chapter 12, Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only God. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. When Jesus was put on the spot, when he was questioned in public, this, he says, was the most important goal of the human existence— To love God with everything you've got. He didn't talk about sacrifice. He didn't talk about ritual. He didn't talk about attendance. He didn't talk about belonging to a certain group. He said the most significant thing that humans are called to do is to love God fully. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he adds a a supplemental command the teacher that had questioned him only asked for one which one is the most important which of the commands is most critical but Jesus gives him two verse 31 he says the second is equally important love your neighbor as yourself no other commandment is greater than these this is the heart, the essence of Jesus' message. The central hub of his life and the bottom line to all of his parables and all of his teachings. The goal of the spiritual life is to love God and to love others. And Jesus makes it sound so clear. He makes it sound so simple. But everyone knows that just because it's clear and simple doesn't mean it's easy, right? Right? I think that's because love doesn't really happen at first sight. Think about it. You don't start loving a neighbor by just flipping a switch, just deciding, oh, okay, now I love them. And the same is true in your relationship with God. You don't just start loving God without some time, without some investment, without some continual commitment. As I look back to that moment in July of 2008, in the wee hours of the morning when my son was born, it's fun to imagine that it really was love at first sight for me, that we were so overcome with emotion and the miracle that we just instantly fell in love. But as I reflect on it, you know, the truth is that our relationship with my son started before they took this picture. Our relationship with our son started closer to the time when they took this picture. It started when we had the first doctor's appointment and we heard that heartbeat and we confirmed that Sarah was pregnant. It started when we picked out the paint colors for the nursery and we started assembling the crib and and all of the different things that were collected to prepare for his arrival. The relationship with my son was growing as I was installing the car seat before I'd ever seen him. The relationship with my son was growing when we packed that go bag so we'd be ready to go to the hospital when he decided to show up. The truth is that the day our son was born, we didn't start falling in love with him when we held him for the first time because we had been falling in love with him for months already. You know, if you've got kids, you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't love at first sight, it was love long before that. It was love because of all that we had already invested into the relationship. I don't think love at first sight really happens, and you may disagree with me, but I think what does happen at first sight sometimes is we make a decision to try. We make a decision to try to love. Think about it this way. When a single young man discovers a single young woman that captures his attention, He doesn't know enough about her to say that he loves her yet, although he might say it. But what he does know is that he'd like to try. He'd like to try loving her, and so he might start devoting some Resource. He might start devoting some energy. He might start devoting some time to getting her attention. He starts dedicating more of his time to thinking about her, and maybe he works up the nerve to ask for a phone number, and maybe she says yes, and maybe then he works up the nerve to actually use that phone number, and he starts to look at the mirror a little more often before he leaves home in the mornings, and, and he might just wash his car to try to catch her eye. He starts to use his money to connect with her and he saves and he buys gifts and he buys dinners and he buys movie tickets and he might save for a ring. He doesn't know that he loves her at the beginning, but he'd sure like to try. And so he starts pursuing the girl with his whole life, the equivalent of heart and soul and mind and strength. And with enough time, with enough investment, with enough energy on both of their parts, they might discover love, but it didn't happen at first sight. And so if that's true, if love doesn't happen at first sight, but it takes time and investment and thought and work, what does that mean for the two commandments that Jesus said are so important for us? Jesus said the two top priorities, most important priorities in life are to love God and love the people around you, but how can you obey those commands when love is not like flipping a switch? There are two things that I think falling in love with God requires. It requires spiritual practice and effort, and it requires emotional engagement Falling in love with God is not a one-time decision. It's the result of a pattern of behavior. And I think the, the same is true of Jesus' second command about loving our neighbors. Learning to love our neighbors is not just a behavior we can start. It's a journey that we begin. And it, began, it demands practice and effort. If life's most important priorities are loving God and loving others then the spiritual life is a journey of devoting our entire selves to that love. Come on, you've seen a romantic comedy before, right? When you love someone, when you're trying to love someone, if you're trying to convince someone to love you, you do big things, You invest in it. This is the kind of thing that causes people to run past airport security and risk getting arrested or buy, you know, 3,000 flowers at a time or stand out in the rain in a lightning storm to get somebody's attention. You give your entire self. We have to focus our thoughts and our emotions and our time and our resources if we want to develop a real love for God and a real love for our neighbor. It's so moving for us to be able to watch those videos just a moment ago of some of the students from, our, from the church who, who have decided that they're going to begin this journey of loving God. But we all know that it's so much more than just the one-time decision. That's the starting line for an entire lifetime of relationship. That's the kickoff point for a devoted love of God. I found a profound analogy about human behavior a few years ago in a book by the Heath brothers, Dan and Chip, called Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. And they describe how the human brain has two independent systems at work. We have our rational side and our emotional side. The rational side is analytical. It uses facts to make decisions about the future. The emotional side, on the other hand, is reactive, and it uses feelings to decide what to do. You could think of it like this. If you've ever set an alarm clock to wake up earlier than you usually wake up, that was your rational brain at work. Maybe you decided, I'm going to get up early and go to the gym, or I'm going to get up early and spend some time in quiet before everybody else in the house gets up, and your rational brain knew that this would be a wise choice, a healthy choice, and so you set the alarm clock accordingly, and then a few hours later, the alarm starts to go off, and you are, it's still dark outside, and you are wrapped up in that warm cocoon of blankets, and your emotional brain says, "Uh uh-uh, not today says there is nothing in the world that I want more than to stay right here for just a few more minutes. And for most of us, the emotional side tends to win those internal debates because it's so strong. The Heath brothers describe the emotional part of our brains like a six-ton elephant and the rational part of our brains like the 200-pound rider on top of that elephant. And the rational rider holds the reins and looks like they're in charge, looks like they're the leader, but the rider is so small compared to the elephant. And so when the elephant and the rider disagree on which way they want to go, the elephant usually wins. And the whole point of the analogy is that if you want to make change in your life, if you want to appeal to both sides of your brain, It's got to make sense to the rational and the emotional parts of your brain. And so this decision to love God can't just be a rational thing. It's got to be something that includes heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's got to be a decision that includes every part of your being. If we really want to make progress in our spiritual journey, we have to devote our whole selves. We have to give heart and mind and body and soul and strength and time and resource. And when Jesus said heart, soul, mind, and strength, he wasn't just making a four-item checklist that needed to be marked complete. He was trying to tell us it takes all you've got. It takes all of you. And if you have more left to give, then you have more left to do. As you study through the stories and the narratives of Scripture, you'll find people who discovered that there was more left to do. There's a beautiful story about the early church and how well people were t- caring for one another and, and, and looking out for one another and helping one another grow spiritually. And in the midst of that, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they are devoted followers of Jesus and they want so badly to be generous and to be able to help and to be a part of what God is doing. But in the midst of all of that, it turns out that there was part of their life that they weren't willing to share with God yet. They weren't as generous with all of their being as they wanted to be. There's the story of the rich young ruler who says he obeyed all of the commandments and he pursued Jesus. And when Jesus came to him and asked him to sell his possessions, it says the young man went away sad because he wasn't ready to give up that part. Of his life. There's a story even of Abraham, one of the giants of the faith, who followed wherever God led him and even followed him into dangerous territory in Egypt. But at some point, Abraham's fear, his emotions started to become more powerful than his faith. And he starts lying to save his own skin rather than trusting God with his future. And these are stories about people who made a decision to love God, but at some point their emotional connection with the world really limited their progress. Rationally, they loved God. They wanted to serve God. Emotionally, they still focused on themselves in so many ways. And if we're going to be healthy spiritually... If we're going to be spiritually healthy people, it requires that we determine what's keeping us from loving God with everything we've got. We've got to figure out what's standing between us and total devotion. And for you, it's something unique, something individual to you. Might be anger, might be fear that's getting in your way. Maybe you aren't sure you can trust God with your future or you're not sure the future God has planned for you is the future that you want. Maybe you're so frustrated with God over what's happened in your past that you can't get past that. Maybe it's just distraction. Your schedule is just so jam-packed that you don't have time to put God first on your calendar. It's something different for every one of us. And the reality is that you and God are the only ones who will ever truly know how you're doing spiritually. You're the only ones. But if we're going to be healthy, if we're going to be spiritually mature, if we're going to make progress, if we're going to love God and our neighbors with everything we've got, then we've got to figure out what's standing in the way of total devotion and we've got to deal with it. And what we find very quickly is that means letting God deal with it. That's the only way that it gets dealt with. We have to give God access. We have to invite God into the deep places in our life, the private places in our hearts and in our minds. We've got to give God license to transform us. Because it's not just about a rational decision. It's not only about a one time choice it's also about embracing god from an emotional standpoint heart soul mind and strength and so god is calling god is calling you and he's calling me and the call the consistent invitation is trust me abide with me follow me have faith in me and he's calling us to love him with all we've got. And so my prayer for you, as you continue through your journey with Jesus in Mark, my prayer for you is that you would have courage. And nobody can do this for you. Nobody else can do this. It can't be done publicly. This has to be done on your own. But I hope you'll build up the courage to say, God, I'm truly asking what's next for me. What stands between me and total devotion to you? God, I'm listening. Where do I need to grow? What part of my life remains to be given to you? And this morning, as you pray that prayer, we will pray that prayer together. And as we wrap up today, some of the spiritual leaders of this church will be stationed around the perimeter of the room after the service for you if you need help taking a next step in your faith. But God is eager. God is eager to hear from you personally, eager to help you personally because He loved you long before you were born, long before your parents ever knew your name. He's loved you from the beginning time. And he wants you to be able to love him back. And so I'll pray for that. And then we'll sing together as we begin to draw to a close this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you for people like Mark that preserved these words, these teachings and sayings and moments from Jesus's life. When Jesus made it so clear what all of the all of, all of faith and the spiritual life really boils down to. Father, we have a tendency to overcomplicate it at times. But it's so helpful to us to hear directly from Jesus' mouth that faith is about love. And Father, it sounds so simple. But it's not easy for us. And so we need your guidance, we need your uh, revelation to be able to even be aware of some of the parts of our life that continue to be under our control rather than following your lead. And I pray, Father, that you would be building in us the courage to ask you and the faith to trust you as you show us what's next for us to take steps toward you in the spiritual journey. Thank you for this invitation. Thank you for this church. We pray in Jesus' name today, and amen.